Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. and welcome to our TIFF Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited today to have a special guest uh, from uh, Athens, Georgia today. His name is Dr. Eric Bohr. With me today, not only do I have our special guest, Dr. Bohr, but we also have Karen Gerth, who is a market development manager here at Endogastric Solutions as well. So welcome, Karen, and thank you for being here today. And then Dr. Bohr, uh, before we start, I'll give you a little background. He is Dr. Eric Bohr. He earned his medical degree at the Pennsylvania State University College of Medicine in Milton uh, Hershey Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Bohr is board certified in surgery, is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons, and has over 23 years of experience. Dr. Bohr specializes in general and minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery. His special interests include gastroesophageal reflux disease, GERD, hiatal and parasophageal hernia repair, and surgical diseases of the intestinal tract. Uh, he is located again in Athens, Georgia. Dr. Bohr, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you. I'm really thrilled that I had a chance to join you. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and start our program. We always start with the big question is, what is GERD? What could patients potentially um, feel? What are the types of symptoms that they would have if they were suffering from GERD? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and GERD is a very complex disease. When I talk to patients who come to see me, um, they'll have any number of different symptoms. The most about is heartburn. And so they'll say, you know, I eat a meal, and if I eat too late, if I eat too much, if I eat something spicy, something acidic, tomato sauce, orange juice, I mean, basically, if I eat anything good, then I get symptoms. My belly hurts. Um, I get acid reflux. I feel like there's acid in the back of my throat. And then that progresses oftentimes or in the back of my chest or in my stomach. And then oftentimes that progresses to patients sort of feeling this sensation all the way along their esophagus. And it can present, interestingly, as chest pain. And many patients who will talk about this will talk about the feeling like they've got something in their chest, under their sternum, this pressure and this discomfort. And if we look across the board, the number one reason that people present to the emergency department with chest pain that's not cardiac is actually reflux. And so it's a mysterious group of symptoms that can present as all kinds of things. Um, but for the most part, it's represented, its representation is, is primarily burning and discomfort in the stomach, sort of in the middle of your abdomen and up under the, up under the sternum, under the breastbone. And then we get into some weirder kinds of reflux, things called like laryngeopharyngeal reflux, where patients have a feeling like they have um, uh, a, a lump in their throat called globus. They'll talk about this lump in their throat. They can't clear their throat. They feel like they have to clear their throat constantly. Um, it can be chronic coughing, pulmonary issues. So there's a whole array of symptoms that that often indicate the progression of the of the disease process. Thank you for that. And I'm glad you brought up the LPR because a lot of people always wonder, you know, is is that really reflux? And, you know, as you had mentioned, it presents in so many different ways. What are the options or, or um, sorry, the what do you normally recommend? I assume since you're a general surgeon, you get these patients that are kind of far, far along in their progression of GERD. But what are the kind of initial recommendations for patients that are suffering from GERD? For example, 
are there lifestyle um, changes that they can do? Are there, you know, food aversions? Are there certain things that you initially recommend for these patients? Yeah, and so um, I actually get them at all stages because the way I've talked about this is, you know, many people are fearful of going to see a surgeon, and I see them in the office, and you can just look at the blood pressure monitor when my assistant takes their blood pressure, and you're like, why is their blood pressure so high? Well, they're in the surgeon's office. I mean, they don't. People don't want to have surgery. Most folks don't sign up, although the bad refluxers do sign up pretty quickly for surgery because they're so sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. Um, and so we really approach this from the medical perspective. Even I, as a surgeon, approach it. And I've really talked to my primary care physicians and said, just send the patient. Don't worry about the medicines. We'll figure it all out. Um, and they know that I'm not driven to take people to the operating room. We're just driven to do the right thing to take care of our patients. And so when we see them, we'll talk about lifestyle modifications. And so that's losing weight, um, stopping things that will increase reflux like smoking and alcohol, um, food aversions, so things to stay away from, the foods I mentioned earlier, fatty fried foods, heavy meals, large meals, um, things that are high in acid content, so tomato sauces, juices that are high in acid, like tomato juice or um, orange juice or pineapple juice. And so it's really a lot of that. D don't eat after six o'clock. So many of the patients will say, you know, my doctors have told me don't eat late and, and after six o'clock is my last meal. And, and those lifestyle modifications are, are very helpful in a subset of patients. They're disruptive in a lot of patients because it really kind of ruins their ability to just do what they want to do. And I think that's where the role for additional therapy comes in because it's it's not much fun eating, you know, baked chicken and and bland rice every day um, to control your reflux. Right. Uh, so right. I think that's where where we can kind of make an, an intervention or an option that doesn't really go to the drastic measures. I mean, we've had I have patients who have their bed up on three bricks at the head of the bed and they'll say, yeah, that works for my reflux. But by the morning I'm at the bottom of the bed or my feet are hanging off. I mean, there's, it's just not conducive to the kind of lifestyle that we lead. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I love that you mentioned that you talked to the uh, PCPs and GPs and FPs uh, because I think that's a big, that's a big area, right? Where generally a lot of times, and I, I'm a GERD sufferer, I take PPIs as well. Um, but that's the first place you go, right? You go to your general physician and you say, you know, I'm, I'm suffering from heartburn and whatnot, and you get on PPIs, but sometimes they don't know that there's other options or there's other things that they can do aside from just continuing on, on PPI. So I love the fact that you talk to your PP or your PCPs and, and let them know, hey, we can talk to them and, and find the right course of action. So yeah. A lot of them, they're very busy. They're very confused by what testing do I get? Do I order an upper GI? Do I send them to GI? Do you know, in GI in many environments, it's very hard to get in. It's a six month wait. And um, when you get there, you get an endoscopy. And if they don't find anything that looks obvious, then it's the sort of, you know, we talk about a surgical up endoscopy and a medical endoscopy. And when we do a surgical endoscopy, we're really looking carefully for the things that can be kind of subtle hints at acid reflux. Um, and so when I talk to the PCPs about it and say, you know, don't bother to order any tests. Don't bother to get any you know, CAT scans and upper GIs and things, just send them and we'll figure out what to do. And I open the, the salvo with the patient that exact way that you're not here to have surgery. We're just here to see what we can do to help define your reflux and figure out a way we can make you feel better. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's fantastic. That's a perfect segue into the discussion of what types of diagnostic testing uh, do you usually provide to the patients to determine, you know, do they actually have GERD? Um, the, the first and probably the most valuable test that we can do is a good history. I mean, you have to get a good history from these patients. And it, it requires asking a lot of questions that their primary care physician, again, they're, I mean, they're seeing their patient panels are huge. They're seeing people with all kinds of problems. And I don't, I don't think it's fair to expect them to ask the detailed questions, but you really have to dig down into the timing of it. Where, when are you taking your medicines? Are you on medication? If you are, what medications are you taking and when? 
because many times um, the understanding of how reflux works to a patient is just, I have acid reflux, my doctor told me to take these medicines. And so the, the testing, if you will, or the evaluation begins with a good complete history and, and a physical exam to some degree helps, but for the most part, it's really a good history. And then from there, the best diagnostic test we have is a visualization of the, uh, of the esophagus, is an EGD, or as many of my patients will refer to it, a GED. And I tell them, <laughs> you're not having a GED, we're not giving you a test. And they all laugh and they all smile and they all, all think that, the, and I'm like, we don't really, we're not giving you a test, we're doing a test. And so, um, and I draw pictures for all the patients in the office. I'm a fantastic upside down drawer. So I can sit and draw the whole upper GI tract for a patient from my from their perspective while I'm sitting across from them. And I think it's better than, you know, charts on the wall and flip charts and all the things that, that we are provided. You know, just sit down and draw it to them and help them understand. And then tell them that an endoscopy, an upper endoscopy is an extremely valuable tool. It's done under sedation, which is the number one question they ask. Am I going to be awake for it? No, we're not going to do it. Are you going to do it here? No, we're not going to do it here. Are you going to do it today? No, we're not going to do it today. <laughs> um, you're going to get a lot of medicine to make you feel really comfortable. And you won't remember anything we do. That's all they want to hear. They don't want to remember it. The next thing they ask is, um, or that I say is, you don't have to do a prep. It's not like a colonoscopy because people don't care about the colonoscopy. They care about the prep. Like you don't have to do a prep, just nothing after midnight the night before. They're good to go. And I explained to them that a, that a good, well done surgical upper endoscopy will look at the esophagus, look at the oropharynx for people with um, at the throat and the, this area. We often just pass right by it. But we had a patient we did uh, did an endoscopy on, as a matter of fact, yesterday, who's got globus and probably LPR, and just the whole upper throat was raw, awful. But if you were doing an endoscopy quickly, you may have just gone right by it and not paid attention. Look at the whole esophagus. Do biopsies if we see any abnormalities, because one of the things that people with longstanding reflux can have perhaps is changes in the end of the esophagus where the esophagus isn't really made to withstand the, the, the effect of acid exposure. Um, look at the stomach, look at the first part of the small intestine, and then do what we call a retroflex view, where we take the scope and actually turn it upside down. So it's sort of like a, like a J like this. So the scope comes down and we turn it backwards and we're looking back up at the, at the junction between the stomach and the esophagus to look for something called a hiatal hernia. And it takes some time to describe, to to demonstrate that in many patients. And so it's really a very, pers being persistent with it, being very deliberate with it, and making sure that we're looking for all of those things. So that's the first test. Um, from there, it really depends on what we find. We may do biopsies, we may do brushings, we may do um, a Bravo test, which is put a little capsule inside the esophagus to look for acid exposure in the esophagus and then calculate data based on that to kind of objectify or make the reflux objective. Um, and then from there, it could be something called manometry. That's the test that patients really despise. They don't like that one because they are awake for that one and they have to swallow water with a catheter in, but we talk through that if that's necessary. And then it may depend upper GI, which is swallowing dye or and taking X-ray pictures or a CAT scan or others. But really, the endoscopy is the it's the gold standard in my mind and in most of us who do this mind to to make the diagnostics. Perfect. And I you mentioned um, briefly about um, kind of you know, the cells changing in your esophagus. So I did want to touch on that. You know, what happens with unmanaged or untreated GERD? And maybe we can, um, next month, April is Esophageal Cancer Awareness Month, um, Barrett's, you know, so maybe you can kind of talk about the correlation of GERD, Barrett's, and potentially, um, you know, esophageal cancer is like the fastest growing cancer. Right. I think they said 600% um, here in yeah. the U.S. So maybe if you can touch on that, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so what I, tell the, what I tell my patients and what I'll tell all of you who are listening is that 
The stomach is a really, really nasty place. It's a hostile environment. It's built to be that way. The stomach is very thick. It has a very, very thick wall. It has a layer on the inside of it, which is really designed to handle a hostile environment. And the stomach doesn't do any digestion. Many people think like my stomach Food's digested. And all the stomach does is it just churns food around. It's a mill. It's a giant mill, mixes food with acid and sends it on its way where all the absorption and digestion occurs. And so when that hostile stomach environment acid, um, and it, well, I should say, and the stomach is really made to handle acid, but the esophagus is very thin. It's very, very thin. As a matter of fact, the layer of the lining of the esophagus is as thin as a sheet of paper. And there are two very, very thin muscle layers around it. So you take all of that acid from inside the stomach and expose it to the esophagus where the lining isn't designed to handle it, it causes problems. It causes pain, it causes discomfort, and then it can begin to change the cells. And so what it does is it changes the cells to look more like intestine cells than it does then they look like esophagus cells. And as those cells begin that process of intestinalization, that can be, that's called metaplasia in, in medical terms. That can then proceed to dysplasia, which is the changing of those cells to precancerous. And then dysplastic cells or dysplasia can then with continued exposure lead to esophageal cancer. And you're exactly right. The incidence of esophageal cancer is remarkably, uh, is increasing remarkably at a rate no one's ever seen it before. It's probably because we have patients who've been on PPIs for decades and have never had a screening endoscopy. And I tell our the primary care docs when I go to see them, I'm like, you know, if you had somebody come in to your office who said they had blood in their bowel movements, you would write an order that second to send them to GI for a colonoscopy. But we have people who are coming back 10 years for PPIs, and there's never an order to send somebody for an EGD. We just don't think about it. It's not them. It's just that's not how our the sense of what we're doing works. And so we're really poor at screening as a society, screening for esophageal cancer. Um, there are some new things that are out there that probably will help, but for the most part, it's, it's that progression of exposure of the esophagus lining, thin paper thin lining to the acid that causes the changes in the cells that eventually can become cancer that has most people worried and most people ready to say, okay, I'm ready to get an endoscopy. Please go look and please tell me that there's nothing wrong. Yeah, good, very, very valid point, points. Um, and, and gosh, uh, we are getting a lot of questions that are coming through. Um, so good. I wanna, yeah, this is exciting. So I wanted to pass it over to Karen to get through some of those questions for you, Dr. Boyd. Sure. Go ahead, Karen. All right, thank you. And Dr. Boyd, thanks for uh, all the explanation that you've been um, going about. But uh, Judy from uh, Reno is asking if you could elaborate on what PPIs are. Yeah, absolutely. So great question, Judy. And it's a short flight from Reno to, uh, to uh, Athens. If you want to come see me, I'll be happy to see you. So <laughs> I promise I'll be this nice in person. Uh, but no, all kidding aside, so acid in the stomach is produced by two mechanisms. And acid in the stomach, um, each of those mechanisms works at different times during the day. And so the proton pump is one mechanism. And it works mostly to produce acid during the daytime. The histamine receptor or H2 receptor, histamine 2, because any of us who take antihistamines know that there's a histamine 1 receptor. That's where we get allergies. If you live in the South, it's terrible this time of the year with pollen. Um, probably not so bad in Reno, but nonetheless, that's the histamine 1 receptor. And that's where the Zyrtec and all those kinds of medicines work. The histamine 2 receptor produces acid in the stomach at nighttime. And so, Proton pump inhibitors or PPIs, that's Nexium, Prevacid, Protonics, Dexalant, those types of medicines shut off that proton pump during the day and decrease the production of acid. 
And I'm going to take one step back and just say most people who have reflux are not overproducers of acid. It's a very big misconception that, oh, my doctor said I just make too much acid. No, you don't make too much acid. Your acid is just getting in the wrong place. It doesn't belong in your esophagus. And so the proton pump inhibitors are very effective during the day at reduce, at re, should reducing and shutting off those proton pumps during the day. And then we oftentimes will supplement that in our patients with a histamine 2 receptor antagonist, so similar, that's Pepsid Zantac Tagamet at nighttime to shut off the nighttime reflux so that we are kind of doing double duty. And it's important that the PPIs are taken in the morning and the anti the um, H2 receptor antagonist, the Pepsid, was typically what we use in the evening. Perfect. Thank you. That was great. Yeah. When, uh, sorry, Karen. There's a lot more questions popping up. So, <laughs> so thank you for that. I I learned something new today about the difference uh, when to take your uh, your PPI. Yeah. Uh, Wendy's wondering uh, how does having reflux make me cough. Um, and I sort of alluded to that earlier, Wendy, and to answer your question, look at how we're sort of designed. So if I turn to the side, my esophagus is sitting back here and my trachea is sitting right here in the front. So when you feel your Adam's apple right here or your trachea as a female, you don't have an Adam's apple, but when you feel your Eve's apple in the front, I just made that up. Um, that's where your trachea is, and the esophagus is right behind it. Well, there's a flap at the top of the esophagus that opens and closes over the trachea to prevent what we eat from going into our trachea. And if we eat too fast, sometimes things go down the wrong pipe. That's what it means. It goes down past that little flap. Well, when we reflux, and this could be reflux when you're laying down or reflux when you're standing sit, standing or sitting. So upright acid reflux occurs. It's anti-gravity. Gravity has nothing to do with it. Acid is going up your esophagus and down into your trachea. And it's as it heads down to the trachea, what's the first thing that's there? The vocal cords. And so acid drips down onto the vocal cords, irritates them, and that's what makes you cough. And that's where... Um, the phenomenon of LPR comes in because those patients will have this chronic cough even if they don't feel any acid because it's not related to acid. It's related to fluid coming up the esophagus and touching those vocal cords and making them cough. And then we have another question uh, regarding PPIs. Lauren is wondering, how safe is continuing my over-the-counter PPI use? I've been taking a low dose for several months and I'm hesitant to stop. Uh, so over the over-the-counter over dose of PPI is half of the prescription dose, like it is for many medications. Um, ibuprofen is the perfect example. So ibuprofen prescription is six or 800 milligrams, over-the-counter is 200 milligrams, and you're supposed to take two. And so it is, um, it is half of the typical dose of a PPI. It, it, it will have the same effects as a PPI, but probably prolonged time to onset of those effects. So they're safe to take in the short term, but many patients are becoming very fearful of the long-term effects. And they, I've seen patients most recently who've been on these medications for 15 or 20 years. As a matter of fact, I have a TIF patient at the end of next month who... Um, is ha has osteopenia from her proton pump inhibitor. And so people are becoming very concerned that they're gonna have bone loss and other things because like any commercial you see on television, the list of side effects is super long. The over-the-counter version, probably safer than the prescription version because it's half the dose. If it's working and effective, you can stay on it, but you need to be sort of con conscientious and be surveyed for any of the side effects that could occur with long-term usage, even though it may not happen as quickly. Excellent. And then I have one last question before I uh, give it back to Andrea. Uh, Matt's wondering, why do I get heartburn when I eat pizza? Um, <laughs> so um, part of the reason for that is that um, you are eating food that is high in acid content. And so pizza, of course, has pizza sauce. It's oily. It has cheese. 
Um, cheese is not acid, but all of those things will lead to this, this increase in the amount of available acid in the, in the stomach. And if you have acid reflux or are prone to have acid reflux, then you will be more prone to have worsening reflux when you eat those foods. There are certain foods that will actually, there's a little valve at the bottom of the esophagus called the lower esophageal sphincter. And that's what the TIF procedure helps to kind of shore up, if you will, or tighten. It's not a valve like we have in our car, like you can take it to the shop and they take the valve out and put a new one in. It's a tissue muscular valve. And that valve will oftentimes loosen or not become as tight in response to certain foods like chocolate and peppermint and coffee and, and um, caffeine. And so it's probably the pizza. It may be what you're drinking at the same time because alcohol will also reduce lower esophageal sphincter pressure. And so it, it's probably um, a combination of all those, but primarily it's the acid in the tomato sauce and the acid in the toppings that will kind of get you. Thank you. So, so we're going to go ahead and start talking about treatment options for, for GERD. So maybe Dr. Bohr, if you can explain currently to date, what are the treatment options? And then while you're talking about, obviously you're going to talk about TIF, you can d discuss, you know, you kind of discussed about what TIF does, but you can kind of go into a little more detail on how the TIF procedure works. Yeah, and then sure. you could probably incorporate the hiatal hernia too, because I know that a lot of patients that are watching um, we'll ask about that as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the treatment options start with medications for many patients. Um, but as I've mentioned a couple of times, the medications may not be effective. And for many patients, it may not be fixing the problem. For instance, those with LPR, they don't respond to, to PPIs because it's not an acid-induced phenomenon. Um, and so then we begin to talk about other kinds of options for, um, for reflux that involve potentially surgery. So when medications fail or when patients decide that they no longer want to take medications or are having side effects of these medications like my patient for next month, um, they will seek out options surgically. The key is to decide if, um, if there's a hiatal hernia or not. So what's a hiatal hernia? A hiatal hernia means that part of the stomach, which typically lives, so if the diaphragm is is the muscle that separates the lung up here from the abdomen down here, and the esophagus comes right through the center of it. If the stomach moves up into the chest through the diaphragm, that's called a hiatal hernia. Now, I want to caution you that many of your doctors may have said, oh, you have a hiatal hernia. Well, that's not necessarily true. You may just have reflux. And so, um, I think we use the term hiatal hernia. I tell my patients, it's kind of like, you know, can you hand me a Kleenex when that might be Scott tissue? It's just a generic term that says that's a tissue, but I'm going to call it a Kleenex. So you may or may not have a physical anatomic hiatal hernia. If one is present, it may be contributing to the reflux and needs to be repaired at the time any anti-reflux procedure is done. And that means that we surgically, oftentimes these days, either laparoscopically with little incisions or robotically with little incisions and the use of the surgical robot, will bring the stomach back down where it belongs and close the diaphragm and make that diaphragm tighter so that the stomach stays where it belongs in our abdomen. And part of the reason for that is in the abdomen, the pressures are all pushing in and it keeps that valve potentially closed as opposed to if it's in the chest, the pressures are pulling out, that's how we breathe, and it may keep that valve open. And then once we fix the hiatal hernia, the, the options become, um, or we'll go down the path of hiatal hernia or patients without hiatal hernia. So if you don't have a hiatal hernia, then the best option I believe, if you have reflux, and this could be LPR, it could be classic reflux, is the TIF procedure. The TIF procedure is a procedure done as its name states, transoral, so through the mouth, endoscopic or incisionless, so it means there's no incisions on the outside, fundoplication. So what's a fundoplication? A fundoplication, if we break the word down, and I don't know Latin, but I do know how to kind of break these words into little chunks that make sense. The fundus of the stomach is the big part
part of the stomach. And so the fundus is the, if you look at the stomach, there's this sort of very large part of the stomach that's called the fundus. And I know my hands aren't doing it justice, but the fundus of the stomach, plication, plicate means that we're gonna pleat something. So you, if a hem in a pair of pants or making a cuff is essentially a plication. So we're gonna use that part of the stomach to somehow recreate that valve at the bottom. As I said, that valve is oftentimes leaky. Um, that valve may or may not be um, working properly. It may not be in the right location. And so we have to reinforce it because it's a muscle valve. We can't take it out and just put a new one in like you would in a engine. And so the fundoplication done through the mouth, transoral incisionless, takes the stomach and it essentially takes, here's the stomach, here's the esophagus. It takes the stomach and wraps it up around the esophagus and turns it just a little bit, enough to recreate the natural appearing opening between the esophagus and stomach and prevent acid from going up in the esophagus and recreate essentially by using this the, the TIF device or the esophagus device, it, we recreate that valve. If we need a hiatal hernia repair, then we're doing this surgically. <clears throat> so obviously we're making incisions. Then we can offer the patients what's called a C-TIF, which is a combined TIF procedure, a hiatal hernia repair robotically with a TIF procedure. Or we can offer a hiatal hernia repair with a, a kind of more classic um, fundoplication where we take part of the stomach and wrap it around. And the ways to do that, we can wrap it 360 degrees. That's called, and I, as I tell my patients, everything in, in surgery has a name. It's called a Nissen, not a Nissan like the car, but a Nissen, N-I-S-S-E-N. That's a 360 degree wrap. Um, we can do what's called a toupee, not a toupee like this that I need, but a toupee, T-O-U-P-E-T, toupee fundoplication, that's a 270-degree wrap, or we can do a wrap that is less than 180 degrees, and they have a variety of names for those. And so a fundoplication is just a general term for using the, that part of the stomach to reduce reflux, and the decision as to which of those makes sense for you is really up to you and your surgeon and their comfort level with all of it. Um, we offer TIF to patients because I think it's a good operation. Um, I think patients are fearful of some of the other operations and some of what you read and as you go down the Google rabbit hole about these operations, much of which is true, but old guys like me have done these surgeries for a long time and have seen lots of patients who have those kinds of problems. And so it's probably true. And I think we needed to add to our armamentarium of things that I offer to my patients, the best available options that we have. Perfect. I love your analogies. They're so relatable. So thank you. <laughs> uh, so talk a little bit about kind of the preparation for the procedure, the TIF procedure in particular, and um, potentially what does recovery look like? A lot of patients that have been um, watching our TIF talks or listening or do their research, you know, they always fear kind of the, that diet <laughs> post uh, procedure. So uh, maybe set up what does it look like prior and then during and then kind of what you expect them to do in the recovery phase. Yeah. And so prior to the procedures, um, and this is for all of these procedures that we've talked about, it's really there's no prep work. I mean, you you can have your meal, eat till midnight the night before your surgery. Um, there's no prep like you have to, are going to have a colonoscopy. So again, you don't have to deal with all of that stuff. Um, and you come into the hospital in the morning of your surgery. Some um, patients will have a prep, a, a patch put on for nausea, kind of like you see people on a ship called the scopolamine patch. We may use a variety of IV medications like Pepsid or other things to try to reduce acid. And all that's really just an attempt to have the recovery part go faster. There are some new protocols and processes in surgery because we know patients recover faster if we do certain things. And then um, the surgery procedures, the TIF procedure itself, if it's done as a straight TIF, meaning no, no, um, um, no hiatal hernia repair, is about 30 to 45 minutes or so. 
Um, they're done typically under general anesthesia, so you will go to sleep for these, and that's a good thing. Um, the, the time of the, how long it takes the surgery, what I tell the patients is that the, their loved one who's out in the waiting room is worried about the time. I'm the one working. They're sleeping, so they just need to relax and not worry about it, right? They're asleep. They have the easiest job of all of us. I'm working. The other family member's worrying. So the time is not um, is not essential. And I also don't believe that, you know, the fastest guy is necessarily the best. So it takes the time it takes, but it's typically around 30 to 45 minutes. For the combined TIF procedures, depending upon the hiatal hernia size, um, that may take an hour to do the hiatal hernia and then add on to that 30 or 45 minutes for the TIF. So again, you're asleep for the whole procedure. It's all done. I keep my patients overnight here. I know there are some surgeons who send their patients home that day, and I think that's all you know, surgeon preference. Uh, but whether you're in the hospital for observation or not, the patients have clear liquids the night of surgery. So the things we avoid are carbonated beverages and straws. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but carbonated beverages, obviously we don't want your stomach to fill up with air. And straws, because um, when we drink with a straw, we tend to drink a lot of air in at the same time. And then you kind of add to that sport bottles because that's essentially a straw with a bottle attached to it. Um, but other than that, clear liquids, that's broth, that's jello, all those kinds, Italian ices, that kind of thing. And then I normally leave the patients on a liquid-ish diet for about 10 days to two weeks. Um, I know the literature out there talks about liquids for a very long time, but I don't really think that's necessary. I think we can, you know, give a good 10 days to two weeks. And now with all of the good protein supplements that are out there, you can maintain your nutrition um, at, you know, just in a Walmart at the, in the pharmacy section, you can find a decent protein supplement to maintain nutrition. Um, and so liquids don't mean clear liquids. Liquids mean, you know, I don't mind if patients have coffee. There are some surgeons who don't like their patients to have coffee. Um, I know how I get if I don't have my coffee. And I know how your loved one might be if you don't have your coffee. So I tell the patients, if you want coffee, you're more than welcome to have it. Um, but we just try to stay away from the things that are going to kind of, um, you know, upset their stomach. And nausea and pain medication it's all done with little incisions. So even if we do laparoscopic or robotic surgery, it's still a series of eight millimeter, five to eight millimeter incisions. And so for that matter, it's a lifting restrictions for about two weeks to 20 pounds. And then slowly from there, we try to wait until about six weeks before we let patients get back to doing anything super strenuous, like go to the gym and lift weights. Um, but you know, aerobic stuff is fine. It's really just the weightlifting part. And so it's a very, very quick recovery when compared to some other procedures. And part of that is the benefit of a transoral fundoplication. Part of it is the benefit of laparoscopic or robotic surgery with small incisions. Fantastic. Thank you. Before we uh, kind of wrap up, I do see a couple more questions that have popped up. So I'm going to let Karen ask some of those so we can get those an uh, questions answered. Thank you. Yeah, we have a couple more. Um, and I know you just mentioned uh, some of the limitations uh, post-TIF procedure, but Corey's asking, uh, his wife is a personal trainer, and would any of her physical limitations, uh, would she have any post-TIF procedure? I think from the training perspective, no. I mean, it would be mostly, that would be obviously just demonstrating what to do to your client. Um, and again, I don't think there's a big deal with doing things that don't require a lot of increased intra-abdominal pressure. And I'm pretty liberal with that. I mean, I think we, I do a very good hiatal hernia repair. I'm, I'm confident in the repair itself, as long as it's not, you know, a 75-year-old lady with a gigantic hiatal hernia and 80% of her stomach in her chest and 80-year-old tissues or 70-year-old tissues. I think for somebody who's young and can do that, you know, they, she would not have downtime and I realize the limitations with downtime, no income, you know, loss of all those kinds of things. So I try to get the patients back to doing what they can do as quickly as possible. Thank you. Thank you. And um, Silvana was uh, stating that she had an endoscopy and was diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. And her doctor prescribed 
Prevacid and a yearly endoscopy. Um, she's just wondering if you could provide a little more information on, you know, I guess her diagnosis, such as Barrett's esophagus. Yeah. So the issue with Barrett's is that now that we understand that Barrett's has a progression to esophageal cancer, um, not in everybody, but in some, <clears throat> surveillance annual endoscopy is important. Um, <clears throat> and acid reduction. So Prevacid, Protonics, Nexium during the day usually takes care of most patients' acid because the majority of it is PPI, is proton pump driven. Um, if that doesn't work, then adding that H2 receptor antagonist, the Pepsid at night. But the Barrett's needs to be surveyed every year. And so we have our patients on a yearly callback. Um, the other option is there are now many options to treat Barrett's that <clears throat> either treat the Barrett's itself or treat the reflux that's causing the Barrett's and then survey the Barrett's. And, and so I would suggest, you know, considering something like TIF or considering an option to reduce that acid exposure um, without medications and then perhaps treating the Barrett's with something like um, radiofrequency ablation like Barracks or there are some new devices that will do cryoablation or cold freezing of Barrett's. And those are all driven by this increase, um, like we talked about earlier, in esophageal cancer. So I think there are some really good options for Barrett's patients that we offer. And one of those is an anti-reflux procedure like TIF. As long as there's not really bad esophagitis, we can do the TIF and then monitor the Barrett's or ablate the Barrett's. And then one of our uh, last question, uh, Wendy's wondering, uh, what causes webbing in the esophagus? So um, webbing in the esophagus can be caused by a few things. One can be this chronic acid exposure and, and then a um, kind of a, I'm trying to think of a non-medical term, but hyperplasia. So a a growth of the lining of the esophagus. So again, the lining of the esophagus, paper thin, is not used to this acid, and it may begin to sort of grow in response to acid exposure, and that can cause webbing or stricture. There are some anatomic things called a Schatzky's ring that can cause webbing, and then there are other esophageal abnormalities like eosinophilic esophagitis that can cause webbing as well. So it's important if you have that and you've had um, surveillance endoscopy for it and have been dilated that they're looking for all, your endoscopist is looking for all of those things to make sure that um, you are being treated adequately because there are good medications for eosinophilic esophagitis now. There are ways to try to prevent that chronic acid exposure that leads to the webbing. And then the fact that you're gonna have to have an EGD and be dilated per periodically, that, that's not necessarily a lot of fun. And I know I said that was the last question, but I, don't <laughs> I see them coming through and I was going to ask if you weren't going to. <laughs> um, Rhonda is wondering, um, is this procedure or the TIF procedure safe for a 70 year old with GERD and a large hiatal hernia? And is it covered by insurance? Um, yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> and I'll expand on those briefly, because I know we're bumping up to the end of this, and I know you all have been so kind to, to take time out of your day to listen, and I'm happy to talk as long as we need to talk, but nonetheless, um, that the answer is yes. Your hiatal hernia needs to be repaired. TIF cannot be done with a large, quote, large hiatal hernia, and large is defined in various people's minds different ways. Um, but most patients from a TIF procedure, their hiatal hernia can, needs to be less than two centimeters. So I don't think anybody would consider that large. So my guess is yours is larger. Can it be done safely in a 70-year-old patient? Yes, I believe it's an excellent option for a 70-year-old patient, um, as it would be for a 27-year-old patient. It's, it's a matter of making sure, I mean, obviously that we're being super careful with the device because they're like any device, there can be potential issues. The device is rather large. And so in our female patients, we typically do some things as we're getting ready to pass that device to dilate the esophagus to make sure we're doing it as safe as we can for the patient. But there is no age contraindication to having that procedure. 
And many patients at age 70 are tired of, with the large hyal hernias, are tired of dysphagia. They're tired of having pain and discomfort when they eat and food gets stuck and they feel bad and they wind up with a bunch of other problems. So um, I think the other, um, the other potential, the, the other part to your question is yes, it is covered by insurance. So both the hyal hernia repair and the TIF procedure are covered by what I pre would pre presume is Medicare. And, and I am sorry, we do have one more. That's right. Uh, Lori uh, has a question. Why do they use fasteners in a TIF and sutures in a toupee? Are the fasteners safe for long term? Great question. Um, and the answer to that is yes. And the answer, the reason for that is the fasteners are essentially made of the same material that suture is. The TIF device is a device that's designed so that we don't have to try to suture. And there were suturing devices on the market and still are um, where people tried to do endoscopic suturing. I tried those devices and I consider myself a pretty skilled surgeon and they're very clunky and very difficult to work with and they're not reliable and not reproducible. And I think anything we do in surgery in medicine should be reliable and reproducible. The, the fasteners are perfectly safe. They're made of suture material. They're shaped in little, eye, like little eyes, not eyes, but eye shape. And so they go through. Um, and they're they're specifically designed to be able to reproduce the way that this surgery is done because we're visually watching it at, at all times. And the, the, the fasteners are really there and are designed to promote healing of those two surfaces. So the stomach that's up around, the esophagus is inside the stomach that's around it. Those two surfaces should heal, will heal and scar to each other if they're in apposition long enough, if they're against each other long enough. And so those those fasteners are really promoting that healing we're not relying on those fasteners for 70 years to be there um holding all those parts together if you will and so it's a it sounds kind of scary and i talk to the patients about this some of them are like i don't want any kind of foreign body in there and i'm like well you're going to have suture in there and so you just may not see it if we do an endoscopy and the material that the fasteners are made of is essentially suture and so I think we can dispel the myth that these fasteners, there's something sort of mysterious about them um, because they're just suture material that's fashioned in a way that makes it reproducible, reliable, and, and able to fit the device to do the procedure correctly. Perfect. Karen, are there any more questions? That's <laughs> all the questions that I have. Thank you. I'm so glad you answered that that question because we get that uh, qu that question has been coming up pretty often recently about the sutures uh, the fasteners if you will so and you explained it perfectly so thank you um, we are wrapping up to the end of the program but I did want to give you an opportunity to provide any advice um, to patients that are potentially watching or may watch this later and if they are suffering from GERD you know, what would you tell them, you know, uh, to do or what, what type of advice would you give them? I think if you're a patient who has who has GERD or reflux, you don't have to suffer. I mean, the the ability to um, to be able to eat normally or go out with your friends and have pizza or be able to have it whenever you want to. I mean, the 27 year old I saw today who's chewing his food up until it's minuscule. I mean, he doesn't need to do that. He's not going to do that. And I said, someday he's like, he's an engineer. He's like, well, I'm focused on my food. I'm like, yeah, but someday you're going to like be focused on your kids or whatever, your dog. Um, you're not going to be able to do that for the rest of your 70 or 80 years you're going to be around. And so I think if you have the symptoms, if you have reflux, heartburn, chronic cough, those kinds of things, I would highly suggest Go to see somebody who can help you evaluate that. So a primary care physician um, is the best place to start. Urgent care, I guess, is the if there's an opportunity to, to get for not to see a primary care doc, you know, perhaps an urgent care can make the referral. You know, in our office, we don't need to work on referrals, and many surgeons don't work by referral basis. And so see somebody in your community or where you're comfortable who can help you work through the process of this. It's not hard. There's tons of resources on the internet. 
I would use things like um, GERD, is it GERD help? Is that how I remember? Yeah, so sure. GERD help. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, be careful about just putting in GERD and Googling it because you're going to get a lot of information that's probably not reliable, but something like um, that endogastric has that you like help.com will give you reliable information. It's not biased. It gives you the opportunity to kind of look and say, what makes the most sense for me? Who can I go see? And then, of course, talk to other people. So I get referrals primarily by word of mouth. I mean, somebody says, yeah, you know, I, I've had chronic cough and I know that so-and-so had her TIF procedure done in January and she feels much better and she can do. So that's where you just ask around. You'll be shocked at how many people you can find who are able to help you out and help you navigate the otherwise fairly kind of tumultuous waters of, of reflux. I think once you get there, um, you'll realize that there are options that, that are better than sleeping with the head of your bed up on three bricks and not ever eating pizza or having an alcoholic drink for the rest of your life. I mean, it just doesn't, it's not logical. You need a better life than that. You deserve it. So seek it out, find it. Love that. You don't have to suffer anymore. Um, well, I can't thank you enough. I know Endogastric Solutions appreciates you joining us uh, tonight. And everyone um, is replying already. Thank you so much. Appreciate the great information. The session was very helpful. So um, thank you again, Dr. Bohr, uh, for for joining us tonight. And uh, uh, for everybody else, I did let you know, GERDhelp.com, you can find a physician near you. Um, and then just feel free to catch us next time, next Tuesday for our next Tip Talk. So thank you everyone. Have a great evening and we'll catch you next time. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERDhelp mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERDhelp. Live well, GERD free.